Support for America Made Easy and the following message come from Nuable Levitas, the transatlantic joint venture supporting ambitious SMEs was setting up in the United States. We help make entrepreneurs' lives easier by providing an operational solution for their U.S. expansion strategies so they can focus on driving revenue and doing what they got into business to do in the first place. Hello and welcome to the America Made Easy podcast, the weekly show where we help international SMEs tackle the complexity of setting up and growing their business in the American market. I'm your host, Morgan Pierstor, and on today's episode, we are exploring entity formation and what international firms should know before deciding on what form of business entity they will use to conduct business in the U.S., We'll also be talking about how the location of incorporation can impact your business and discuss when is the right time for a company doing business in the U.S. to incorporate. Today, I am joined by Steve Bentley, Senior Vice President of Finance and Director of International Services for Avidas Group. Steve is a certified public accountant focusing on taxes for over 30 years. He's helped hundreds of international firms navigate setting up in the U.S. market. Steve received his Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration from California State University at Fullerton and a Master's of Business Taxation from the University of Southern California. He's served on the Tax Executive Committee with the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and resides in Billings, Montana. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us here today. Again, our audience, we have Steve Bentley here with the Vetus Group. And as I already mentioned, Steve has a wealth of experience working with the international clients, helping them get established in the U.S. So we're really grateful that he's here with us today on a very chilly morning here in Billings, Montana. Happy to do it. It's <laughs> a uh, pretty typical January morning here for Billings. Uh, had uh, four inches of snow up at my place uh, when I headed out the door. Oh, wow. I'm a little bit higher than where we are right here, so there's a little bit less snow down here, but uh, it's still manageable. Yeah, for, for our listeners, it's about negative uh, 13 Celsius uh, at yep. the moment here in Billings, uh, so it's quite a, a snowy January it's, day. It's cold whether you're Celsius, Fahrenheit, or Kelvin. Yeah. <laughs> it's cold. No matter the way you look at it. Uh, very good. Well, Steve, I think we'll, we'll just dive into here. You know, I've worked with you on a, on a lot of different international projects. We've you consulted and helped advise a lot of international clients. Um, and so maybe we just start at the beginning. And, and if you could kind of touch on what are some of the things that these international firms really need to consider when they think about incorporation? Where, where would you have them start? Well, when they're thinking about incorporation, they've moved beyond the initial decision, of course, of whether they want to be in the U.S. or not. And we can talk about some of those implications later on. As far as incorporation goes, uh, it, it seems very complicated because in the UK you have a national corporate registry. Uh, basically, you, everybody, no matter where they are, they go to one place, they file one set of papers, they get their identification number, they've created their corporation. In the United States, you get 50 of them to <laughs> choose from. And I suppose if you want to count the territories, there's a few more out there as well. Exactly. The uh, location that you choose for incorporation probably is not as uh, critical as it may be perceived. Um, our, our general advice first is, uh, if you're going to have a physical presence here in the U.S., then that's most likely the place you want to incorporate. Mm -hmm. uh, no sense in compounding your administrative costs and efforts by incorporating someplace and then 
ending up someplace else. Uh, incorporating in any one particular location does not limit you to doing business in that location. You're still free to do business throughout the United States. Um, so it's really just a question of the state incorporation laws, whether they have any specific benefits that might uh, appeal mm -hmm. to somebody coming in. Uh, or uh, on the other side of it, it's simply a question of cost. Mm -hmm. Where's the cheapest place we can get away with? Right. And, and I might stop you there, Steve, for a moment, because I think you hit on a really important point and something we hear quite a lot, and uh, that, that companies don't realize that, um, you know, you have this federal incorporation, but then you have to register with states, and one it, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, you do have the opportunity to incorporate in a state and then do business in another state. Uh, so I think that's a really important point you've made. That is correct, and, and I need to correct your terminology a little bit. There is no such thing as a federal incorporation. Once you incorporate, when you incorporate, you're, you've created a legal being. You've had a baby. Uh, it doesn't have arms and legs, and it's not very cute, but it has a legal life. And you now have to nurture that legal life and bring it forth. And that happens when you incorporate with any one of the 50 states. Once you've incorporated, you will get a federal tax identification number. And that is the one thing that happens at a federal level. But everything else is state-controlled. Corporate law is all state-controlled. Most states have very similar, if not identical, corporate governance. But some states have adopted little twerks and, and twists uh, that you may need to be aware of uh, if you're going to incorporate in one of those states. Um, but it's, it's all controlled at state level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the complexity of the federal system and how unique that is, is compared to the uh, other environments these international companies are, are coming from throws yes. them for a loop uh, because that uh, all the different levels of regulation and taxation and, and that type of autonomy at the subnational level is really unique to them. It is. It is. And in, in fact, I haven't really researched a lot of it throughout the European Union, but I believe most of the EU uh, governs corporations very similarly to the UK in that there is a federal level of governance that takes place. And uh, any influence that the local political subdivisions may have is generally very limited. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case in the United States. That's the big difference that, that uh, you need to work with. And Steve, you've, you've mentioned the, the terminology corporation. When uh, a company is thinking about incorporating in, in the United States, uh, they have a few different options in terms of the type of entity. Could you walk us through what those are and maybe what the pros and cons of each would be? Absolutely. Um, there are essentially three different business entity types in the United States. Uh, the, the corporation that we have been speaking about is a legally defined uh, entity. As I say, it, it gets a legal life when you uh, create it. Um, there is a partnership concept uh, in the United States. If uh, two or more um, individuals, businesses, whatever, two or more other entities uh, wish to get together to do business, but they don't want to go through the corporate routine, then all the states have partnership rules. Uh, now, I'll tell you right off the bat that we generally do not recommend partnership as a form of business operation for an international company coming into the United States. And that is because it has significant tax implications for the owners that a corporation or an LLC may not have. And now I've just said the three magic letters, LLC. <laughs> that is the third type, and it's actually a relatively recent entity. Uh, the state of Wyoming, interestingly enough, created LLCs and did so back in the early 70s, 1970s, not 1870s. <laughs> so 
the law around LLCs is much younger than it is around corporations. Corporations have existed since, well, even before the United States existed. I mean, there were corporations in European countries uh, that uh, did most of the exploration of the world that took place. So LLCs uh, are a hybrid. Um, in the United States, there's actually no tax category of an LLC. As an LLC, you have to choose to be taxed as a corporation or as a partnership. And domestically, most um, U.S. people who set up LLCs choose to tax them as a partnership. And that's because partnerships are pass-through entities from a tax standpoint. That means the entity itself pays no income tax to, to the government. All of the income, losses, expenses, whatever the net bottom line result is, flows to the owner's income tax reports. So if I'm a member of an LLC and it's being taxed as a partnership, I'm going to have a share of income that I have to report on my personal income mm -hmm. tax return, along with whatever else I have in a way of income and expenses. Uh, that eliminates um, a, an adverse feature of the U.S. tax system, and that is the concept of double taxation that comes into play when uh, you are operating in a corporate form. The corporation pays its own income tax, and then if it turns around and distributes what's left over to the owners, form of dividends, the, the owners get to pay another income tax on those as well. And so that's where the double taxation comes in. Um, just as a partnership is not really a recommended form for foreign uh, companies coming into the U.S., an LLC electing as a partnership would not be a recommended form either. And personally, my feeling is, if you're going to form an LLC and elect to be a corporation, just be a corporation. Why not be a corporation? Yeah, it's, uh, there, there's a perception that an LLC is administratively less expensive to operate, and that's, that's a myth. That's an urban mm -hmm. myth. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion. We talked to a lot of international clients, um, and maybe they heard from someone LLC. I think a lot of um, people working in this field in the U.S. Might, might recommend an LLC, but it's not always the best fit for an international firm, even though it could be for a U.S.-based firm, I think because they, they don't have this nuance or perhaps understanding of partnerships as you've described it. So I think that's a really helpful um, point that you've made there and important for our international listeners. It is. It, it is very much so. Um, you know, Creating a corporation versus creating an LLC pretty much has the same steps. With a corporation, uh, you're going to file what are called articles of incorporation with the Secretary of State within the state that you've chosen to incorporate. If you have an LLC, you're going to file articles of association. Uh, there's still a filing that's required. Um, corporations generally adopt bylaws, and I say generally because there's no actual statutory requirement that they adopt bylaws, but they almost predominantly do, and all the clients we work with, set up to, we set up bylaws for them. An LLC, on the other hand, creates what's called an operating agreement, uh, which conceptually is very similar to a partnership agreement. It defines the uh, income and expense sharing that takes place with that LLC and the governance of the LLC. So the paperwork is about the same. Mm -hmm. um, it, an interesting, uh, I don't know how interesting it is, I guess the sidelight aspect is that with a corporation, you um, will issue stock. Uh, the corporation obtains an owner when somebody buys stock from that corporation. With an LLC, you are issued a membership, and there is no formal certification of that membership. So unless you do something special, there's no piece of paper to prove that you own the LLC. Okay. It's all handled on the internal documentation. 
And that can take people by surprise sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're used to, uh, if you buy stock in a corporation, you get a stock certificate. Right. Um, a lot of nuance here, a lot of complexity. It's probably making some of our listeners think, do I really have to, to, to go through this process? Is it necessary that I incorporate? Maybe I'll just open up a branch office. But I think there's some nuance there as well maybe you could speak to. Um, there's probably relatively little in the way of legal nuance there because uh, a branch office of a foreign corporation is going to be treated under corporate law here in the U.S., so the rules are going to be pretty much the same. There is a potentially immense tax difference. And that is because when a foreign corporation opens a branch office in the United States, they effectively open their worldwide entire operation to the scrutiny of the Internal Revenue Service, not just what goes on here. Mm-hmm. And that's because corporations who operate through a branch office system have an immense amount of flexibility in manipulating or potentially manipulating uh, where income and expense will get reported Mm -hmm. uh, by virtue of the fact that it's all internal. Um, There's no uh, external documentation or relationship to govern that. And so the IRS tends to look very closely at branch office operations to ensure that what they believe is a fair amount of activity is being reported to the U.S. government. For that reason, um, Avidas's pretty much uniform recommendation is not to operate in a branch office environment, but to set up a separate legal entity because it does create a firewall. Um, there is a concept of transfer pricing, and we can get into that if we have time, but uh, essentially when you have a corporation here in the U.S., and by you I mean, uh, let's say, a U.K. individual or a U.K. Uh, corporate entity owning a corporation here in the U.S., you create really a, a legal firewall between uh, the U.S. activity and the non-U.S. activity by virtue of having this corporation. Mm-hmm. So it creates a great deal more certainty in what's going to happen from a tax standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I think it, a lot of our listeners, a lot of international companies out there, understand the U.S. does tax worldwide income. That um, isn't something they're perhaps familiar with, and it catches a lot of companies by surpi- surprise. It can be a costly mistake um, if they don't create this firewall, as you've described it, to protect their their parent company in the UK or whatever other country it may be. Um, so another really important thing to consider in, in protecting their their parent company and creating a barrier um, by establishing that, that new company. Absolutely, very much so. Um, the, The Internal Revenue Service has been hamstrung for the last 10, 15 years uh, by a relatively conservative uh, executive branch that uh, has reined in its ability to enforce the rules. Um, You can draw your own political conclusions from that, uh, but the simple fact is that, the, for instance, the audit rate in the United States for individual income tax returns over the last 10 years has dropped from 1.2% of all returns to 0.4%. And it's also constrained, the Internal Revenue Service is constrained in, in its business activity. It does try and focus more of its work in the business area uh, because, frankly, it's more lucrative for the U.S. Treasury. Mm. Uh, but uh, it's not able to, to look into things as deeply as it has been in the past across the board. So it has to focus on where it sees as the, the really the lowest hanging fruit. And a branch office can be brushing the ground at such low-hanging fruit. (laughs) It's a good analogy. Um, 
you know, switching gears just just a little bit, um, you know, when we talk to a lot of companies that have been investigating, they've been doing some homework, and maybe they, they pick up the phone, we're, we're consulting with them on their U.S. expansion, uh, and they say, I've got it figured out, I'm setting up a Delaware corporation. Uh, it's almost that they think it's a foregone conclusion, that there's no other consideration to be made, and you really, you, you touched on this earlier in the conversation just a little bit, but um, could you could you explore a little bit more about why Delaware may or may not be the best place to incorporate and and um, why companies should not consider it a foregone conclusion that's what's best for them? Absolutely. Delaware um, has a tremendous marketing, media marketing uh, operation as a state. Um, and it has created this uh, aura of perfection uh, in terms of uh, bring your corporation here to Delaware. Uh, now, it does that because um, administering, regulating, and having corporations formed in Delaware is a major revenue source for the state of Delaware, just as gambling is a major revenue source for Nevada. Right. Uh, uh, corporate administration is the same thing in Delaware. So they really um, they promote it, and um, there's a lot of folks out there drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, as, as we might say. So um, Delaware is one of those states that has some twists to its corporate uh, regulations, uh, statutory, both statutory and uh, judicial. Uh, one of the things that Delaware really likes to promote is the fact that they have what they call a chancellery court. Now, that's a court system that focuses purely on corporate governance and liability issues. Uh, they do not, for instance... Uh, have individual cases of, of fraud or robbery or other crimes or that type of thing. They only work on corporate stuff. So Delaware, of course, promotes that who knows more about corporate governance than the chancellery court. And that may, in fact, be true. However, if you're going to incorporate in Delaware so that you can take advantage of the chancellery court, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, why do you need to worry about having a court right. that's going to be able to uh, handle your specific issues? Now, there are not a, a, a plethora, but there are probably many companies out there who have unique situations where that can be a benefit. And if it is, absolutely incorporate in Delaware. Um, the other thing that the Delaware regulations and statutes do on a general standpoint is they they have a more aggressive um, protection, let's say, of management uh, as opposed to protecting stockholders. Generally, state corporate law focuses on the um, stockholders, the primary. Uh, the, the, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to... As the most important factor involved okay. with the corporation. So if there's a dispute between shareholders and management and the two of them are not the same, then uh, most states are going to fall to the shareholders, mm -hmm. uh, and management's going to have to make changes or whatever in order to accommodate that. Delaware doesn't do that. Delaware is actually focused the other way around. So there's a lot of things you can do under Delaware law to protect management, and there's a lot of things under Delaware law you can do to enhance um, the administration of a publicly traded or publicly held corporation. So if you're coming over here, and you are planning to um, go public, you're mm -hmm. planning to have an initial public offering and sell stock across the board through brokers, Delaware is probably where you need to be. Uh, and you may as well be there initially so that there's no 
question about moving around to try and pull something off mm-hmm. uh, at some point in the process. If not, and I think the vast majority of Newable's client base probably is not looking at a public mm-hmm. offering. Um, Delaware is a very expensive but non-productive option. Mm-hmm. So we, we try to steer people away from Delaware. Uh, as I said, first thing we do is if you're going to have a physical presence, let's go there. So a lot of people end up in Florida. A lot of people end up in Texas. Uh, they, just, they have something they're going to do there. And that's the, the best place to incorporate for them. Uh, if you don't, you're a web-based company. And for whatever reason, you want to have a U.S. legal presence, um, but there's not going to be any physical presence. Then, again, assuming that there is no cachet to your state of incorporation within your business, you pick the cheapest thing you can. And right. frankly, that's Wyoming. <laughs> I mean, it's just People south of People don't think about it's... Wyoming, do they? No, they don't. Uh, but... You know, Wyoming, is, as we noted earlier, was the, uh, uh, the, the innovator with LLCs. Uh, Wyoming corporate law is as protective of shareholders as, as it can be, and it's, it's all completely private. Mm-hmm. In, in the area of privacy, it's pretty uniform across the states in almost everything involving incorporations. Ownership is private. There is no national or state-based stock registry. You, you don't report to anybody that you have bought shares. Um, an exception to that happens to be Nevada, one of the states we mentioned earlier. Uh, Nevada requires a publication of financial information by any corporation that is incorporated within Nevada. Uh, it's relatively benign, but frankly, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> and uh, unless there's a real reason for you to be in Nevada, we, we stay away from that just because mm-hmm. you don't want to deal with that kind of thing. So it sounds like, you know, if you are a, a large publicly traded company, you know, perhaps Delaware is the right spot for you. Um, but as, as you mentioned, a lot of the Avitas clients, a lot of Noodles clients are small to mid-size enterprises. They are. Uh, and that really doesn't describe them. Um, and in that case, they need to take a closer look at where they're ultimately going to be doing business, perhaps where their customers are, uh, and that might better describe the state where that they, they should incorporate ultimately. Th- that's true. And I, I said something about, you know, the cachet of the state. Um, some people are going to say, God, if I'm incorporated in Wyoming, I mean, you know, people think we're raising cows or something. <laughs> um, and, and from a practical standpoint, the state you're incorporated in arises within business dealings in the United States very, very seldom. Um, it can arise in uh, contractual relationships because quite frequently the, the contract will say, party of the first part, ABC Corporation, parentheses, a Wyoming corporation, close parentheses, doing business with CDEF company, party of the second part, and yada, yada, yada. That's the only place it shows up. Um, the other place it can show up in, in terms of legal relationships is the choice of governing law for a contract. And every contract has to pick a state to be the state of governing law. It doesn't have to be the state you're incorporated in. So you could incorporate in Wyoming, and you could have significant business operations, let's say in New York, and all of your contracts say New York's going to be your governing law. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's perfectly fine. But if you feel like that location has uh, a resonance with your customers, uh, with your vendors, with the public in terms of who you're doing business with, then you may want to look at a more um, attractive-sounding state such as California. Now, you don't want to incorporate in California if you're not doing any business in California because California has a minimum franchise tax, like $800 a year. Okay. And so there are 
I mean, you've you got that cost that you have to deal with. Um, New York also has a minimum franchise tax, but it's a lot less. I can't remember exactly how much, a couple hundred or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the standpoint of I'm a New York corporation or I'm a California corporation, that rings a bell that I am a Wyoming corporation doesn't ring. Of course. So that's Depends all part of your decision yeah. process uh, as, as to where. Of course, yeah. So really, uh, to think about what the, the image they're wanting to portray or if it's more of a cost decision, what's most important for them. And you've really uh, touched on one of the was my next questions, really, and it is something that, that was um, also explored a little bit in the beginning of this conversation, and that's, um, again, you have this, this corporation that you make initially as an LLC, as a corporation, as a partnership, whatever it is, but then if you're going to be doing most of your business in New York, if you're going to be doing most of your business in California, you're going to have to register in those states as doing business in those states with the Secretary of State. That is correct. Could you talk a little bit about the role of Secretaries of States and when companies have to register with them and what their role is? The role of a Secretary of State in any state is to officially recognize the existence of an entity. Now, secretaries of states do a lot more than that. They, they manage voting, for instance, in every state. But as far as business goes, they're there to recognize the official formal existence of an entity. If you're incorporated in that state, they're recognizing the birth of the entity there. If you've incorporated in one state and you're registering in another state, and by the way, that's called a foreign registration, not because you're a U.K. owner, but because you didn't incorporate in that particular state, then the state is recognizing that, yes, you do exist, and it's okay for you to do business here in the state. One of the big benefits of uh, registering uh, as a foreign corporation in any one state where you're doing business is you get access to the state courts. So if you haven't registered and you have a client in that state and you have a dispute with that client, you may not be able to sue that client because you probably would have to sue them within the state and you don't have access to the state courts. Um, Registration is simply filing a form with the Secretary of State relatively similar to the Articles of Incorporation. Usually attach a copy of your original Articles of Incorporation. Uh, You pay a fee, and you choose a registered agent. Uh, The registered agent is another concept um, that I think gets confused about. It's an official legal address within the state with a person or legal entity attached to that address whose only job is to be the agent of service, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if you're sued in that state, they notify the registered agent. The registered agent notifies you, process continues. Um, If the state itself needs to contact you for some legal purpose, uh, you haven't filed your annual report with the state or something, they notify the registered agent registered mm-hmm. agent notifies you. They don't want to be notifying you in whatever country your the parent company is located. They don't want to send this notification to somewhere in the UK, for uh, example. It may never make it, or it may <laughs> make it way too late. So the registered agent is a very limited in terms of the services that they provide. And registered agents do not, for instance, allow you to use their address as your address, your physical address within the state. They don't want your mail. They don't want to have to process that. They don't want to get phone calls about you. They're very limited in terms of what they're doing. So it's an important distinction. It uh, is. Um, you know, there's there's concepts of official addresses in other parts of the world, and uh, this is very different from that. Now for a quick break. This week's top tip for the U.S. market is brought to you by Allison Stewart Allen, co-author of Working with Americans, the first ever business manual exclusively about U.S. business culture. 
So one of the top tips uh, for working with Americans is uh, to know that the clock is king. Uh, being on time for meetings uh, is really crucial. Uh, you know, Americans uh, keep very busy schedules. Deadlines are serious. Uh, so, you know, meeting uh, any uh, delivery and completion times uh, is going to be essential, or you might risk losing the business. Thanks, Allison. Our listeners can visit the book's website, workingwithamericans.com, to download two free chapters and claim a 20% discount on ordering the book until December 31st, 2020, with the code WWA20. Steve, earlier you you mentioned um, w- with also the important aspect of, of filing with the IRS as a you know as becoming this corporation in the United States and and the need for having a federal employer identification number or FEIN number. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why it's important to do that and what they need that number for? What it allows them to do as a as a company in the United States? Absolutely, it's effectively a company social security number here in the U.S. It's a company's registered company number. Uh, if you're looking at uh, a European Union company or UK company, it's the number that everybody uses to identify that company in um, reporting. So uh, by reporting, there may be uh, informational reports that have to be issued uh, to a company uh, during or at the end of each year called 1099 forms over here in the U.S. And you need a federal employer's identification number f- uh, to um have those reports sent to you. Quick word about federal employer. You don't have to be an employer. You need a federal employer identification number. Happens to be the acronym that's been adopted. Um, It used to be a federal ID number, but then that got mixed up with things like social security numbers and and other types of numbers. So um, don't get misled that, well, I don't have any employees, so I don't need an FEIN. Mm -hmm. You do. If you're doing any business here in the U.S., you need an FEIN. If you're going to have a banking relationship, you need an FEIN. Um, there is quite a bit of paperwork required before you can open a bank account in the United States. Oh, it's not so easy as it is just walking in or doing it online like it is overseas. It, 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 it's very difficult. I th- think it's getting more difficult overseas as well. Uh, this concept of know your customer, uh, which really came into play about uh, 15 years ago or so, Uh, as a method of cutting down on uh, illegal monetary activity uh, has really taken root pretty much around the world. Uh, But you definitely have to um, uh, create an extensive documentation proving who you are. And, and of course, with a corporation, they don't want just the corporation. They need to know who's behind the corporation. So one of the things that uh, we suggest uh, sometimes is that a foreign corporation organizing in the United States may want to consider uh, utilizing a U.S. person as an officer of that corporation, uh, primarily so that they can facilitate the banking relationship. Um, That is another service Avidus Group can offer. Um, Obviously, there are risks and liabilities associated with that, so uh, it's not a real inexpensive uh, possibility, but sometimes it's really the only thing you can do in order to get set up and operate. Mm-hmm. And and speaking about you know getting set up and making that critical decision, knowing what comes afterwards in terms of compliance, in terms of needing this documentation we've been talking about, uh, what should companies think of? When is when should they know is the right time to incorporate it? It of course must vary from company to company, but are there some? you know, kind of key pointers or things companies should look for when making that decision of whether to incorporate in the United States? You want to incorporate in the United States before you begin operating a trade or business in the United States. 
a the concept of a trader business is a concept of art. It's not a child of statutory language. It is used throughout the Internal Revenue Code, for instance, but nowhere does the Internal Revenue Code define what a trader business is. So effectively, what a trader business is is a repetition of transactions, profit-motivated, uh, that will take place from primarily a uh, permanent establishment location. So you're a web-based company. You're selling into the United States via the web. You deliver your product, presumably, uh, from outside the United States. You deliver your service from outside the United States. You are not conducting transactions within the United States. You do not have a trader business in the United States. There is really no need to incorporate in the United States in that circumstance. Um, you sell a product, and you've decided that you need to be able to service that product uh, at the customer's location. And uh, so you're going to possibly either hire a contract with people here in the U.S. to go service that product at their U.S. customer locations. You have now entered into the trader business environment. You have created a recurring series of transactions uh, that are physically being conducted in the U.S. And uh, you're, going to, you're going to either be doing that as a branch office with all of that that entails, or you create your corporation uh, to house that activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it's you want to incorporate in the U.S., you want to get the structure set up before you expose yourself to U.S. income taxes, which is when you start conducting a trader business in the U.S. And of course, with every company that's listening, they, they want to get to that point, right? They want to they make money. They want to be having you know, good sales within the market. So yes. it's something everyone's going to have to prepare for yes. if they want to make it in the U.S. It, it, it's, it's planning. I mean, you can't overemphasize the planning. And, you know, the first question that you asked me, and I can't remember the actual content of the question, but I made reference to um, um, you know, being prepared. And you cannot overplan for this stuff. And, and actually, we see that as probably the biggest failure point for companies coming into the U.S. They, they bootstrap it, they shoestring it, and they don't really sit down and understand what it's going to take, what it's going to cost, and what the potentials are before they start taking steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessarily a ticket to disaster, but you're definitely on the train. And uh, you, you need to get off that train as quickly as you can and get a better handle on what's going to happen. So plan, plan, plan. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a perfect segue to, to one of my questions here towards the end of our conversation, and that's do you have an <clears throat> international client experience that's really kind of stuck with you and you think illustrates why our listeners should really be thinking carefully about these topics? Uh, I, I think we do. Um, we have a client uh, from the Far East. Um, you know, I'm going to get vagues to <laughs> protect identities. And they produce a product. Um, they're actually a publicly traded corporation in their home country. Um, they have their uh, activities in a lot of different areas. Uh, but they produce a particular product that they import into the United States and they sell. And they had been doing so um, without the benefit of a U.S. corporation for about two or three years, um, really opening themselves to the potential for branch office issues. Uh, and they, and honestly, I can't remember how they came to us, but they came to the determination that they had to fix that. And they were right, they did. And so we helped them fix that. We, we got them organized. Um, they actually organized in a state that, they probably didn't have to organize in, 
but we got that fixed. And um, we've been uh, assisting them with the accounting work, with tax mm -hmm. compliance work, uh, with uh, the administration of the U.S. business, um, actually with the payroll of the U.S. business. Our co-employment uh, service is provided to them as well. And that's been going on now for, I think, five or six years. And uh, it's, it's been a very successful relationship. Um, they did not plan properly, so we supplemented that when they came on board with us. And we said, this, you know, this is where you've got to go. This is what you've got to do. This is what you've got to take into account. Uh, we think this is what it's going to cost you. Uh, be prepared to invest this much money. And, you know, we've looked at your past sales and your projected sales. They were doing some planning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it looks like this is going to work for you. And it has. Uh, the, uh, the sales in the United States, I think, have tripled since they uh, organized the, the corporation here. The administration of uh, the transactions has gone a lot smoother. They actually do their accounting themselves back in their home country. We have online access so we can review it to ensure it's compliant mm -hmm. with U.S. tax rules uh, and uh, U.S. reporting rules. And we arrange uh, an audit for them. We don't do audits. We are not a re regulated, certified public accounting firm. So we, we don't issue financial statements with opinions on them. Uh, but we have a ton of contacts within the auditing community, CPA community, and so we can bring outside parties in really to, at a moment's notice to take care of these types of things. So mm -hmm. we're, we're administering their U.S. office, and it's working out great for them and uh, we keep them on the straight and narrow, and yeah. they can sleep at night. <laughs> That's so important, and you know, I think uh, we really got into this business because we saw so many companies had made mistakes, and that's yes. part of the impetus for this podcast is to raise awareness, get people thinking about these things, so we don't have to do a cleanup job, and, and instead we can do a planning job. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned the, the importance of planning. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of, our, of this week's episode, um, and it's really, I think, a good segue to our wise words segment, which is just really, I, I ask, what are your final thoughts about this? You've said plan, plan, plan. Would that be your, your wise words to leave us with or anything else to share? Well, what we have learned is that when you're doing uh, marketing attempts, mass mailings, emails, this type of thing, you have to um, hit a person seven times before they start paying attention. So I've given you three. Plan, 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 plan. Now that's seven. Please plan. Perfect. That's, that's the wisest word I can give. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your expertise. It's been really helpful, and it's been really fun to speak with you. So thank you for being on the America Made Easy podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Martin. You've been listening to the America Made Easy podcast with me, Morgan Pierstor. My guest this week was Steve Bentley. This podcast is produced and edited by Morgan Pierstorp and Rob Eastman in partnership with Newable Adidas. You'll find links to more information on this week's episode and how America Made Easy can help your business in the notes section of this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and introduce a friend. You can also write to us at americamadeeasy at newable.co.uk. Thanks for listening.